Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We thank you for the beauty of your character, the way you've designed the the universe to run, your grace, your mercy, your patience with us. We ask that you'll join us here today as we study you, that uh, you will fill our minds with truth and and, and love. We want to remember Bo Gregory and his father, and that you will uh, take special interest there and intervene as you know is best in that circumstance, we pray. And we pray for our ministry and our friends around this world that are sharing this message. You will open opportunities that they will be able to uh, share with others and that soon this world will be lighted and we can see you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Receive this email this week. Your ministry has been a wonderful blessing to me. It has been like finding the missing pieces of a beautiful puzzle. You have confirmed for me many things I already believed and have enlarged and enhanced my understanding of many others. I'm anxious to share the materials I have been... Uh, pointing people to your website, but I'm not getting the response I expected, so I'd like to try passing out some DVDs to the God-Shaped Brain Seminar. So please send me some. Thank you. From Florida. Now we're starting a new quarterly today. Um, James, uh, this is the book of James, first lesson, James the brother, uh, the Lord's brother for the fourth quarter. And in the introduction of the lesson, it points out in the third paragraph that Martin Luther considered the book of James to be an epistle of straw. That was Martin Luther's words. And Luther relegated James, Jude, Revelation, and Hebrews to um, the back of his Bible. He said he couldn't find Christ in any of those books. And they were basically useful for um, devotions, but not for doctrine. So he, he cut those to the back. So in the Reformation, when it started with Luther, they had 62 books instead of 66 books uh, that we go with today. And the lesson then rightly points out in paragraph 4 of the introduction, Luther's emphasis on Paul's epistles, especially Romans and Galatians, and his rejection of James for anything more than devotional value has influenced a large segment of Christian thinking through the centuries. It sure has. First, let's point out that Luther was one of the heroes of the Reformation and one of God's agents doing great good for the cause. And we, we, I expect to see Luther in heaven, and, and I think we owe Luther a lot. But Luther was coming from a position uh, in which there was so much distortion that infected Christianity, it wasn't really possible for him singly and alone to break free of it all. But he did a great job of opening the door, so to speak, to this process. How has Christianity uh, been influenced by the rejection of James and the three other books? How, how would you say Christianity has been influenced by that? What have been the consequences for putting those four books to the side? Yes, Wendell. An emphasis on thought and not experience. Oh, okay. A thought and not experience. Basically, having the right beliefs. Okay? Having the, holding the right doctrines. Yes. You lose a, a good portion of the great controversy perspective. Huge. Huge, yes. Loss of the larger view over the controversy of God's character. It's basically just almost expunged when you get rid of those four books. That's great. Um, other thoughts? It, it makes much of the salvation plan as we teach it a very self-referenced presentation. It's no longer about uh, a larger conflict going on, including all the intelligences in the universe. It's all just about humans and us, and it's about me and my salvation. Have I been saved? Have, you know, Christ died to pay for my sins, and it puts us at the center rather than putting God and his character and his government, his methods at the center. Um, and in reaction to the infection of the imposed law construct that came in through the, the Roman imperial system, 
uh, a legal religious emphasis grew out of this as well, frequently referred to as penal substitution, which focuses on some legal adjustment, legal solutions, legal pardon, um, which devalues, and this is what Wendell was getting at, it devalues the actual transformation and regeneration of people. We, we don't have to be, and if you look at what's, much of Christianity, what is salvation? And when they say, have you been saved, what are they asking? Yeah, have you, have you, you know, accepted Jesus? Have you had the, the payment made in your behalf? Have you had your sins purged from the record books of heaven? Um, it's some legal thing that you've done. Or they aren't actually asking primarily, um, do you have, have you been healed in your heart and mind to live like Jesus? It's not primarily what they're asking. Sabbath lesson, the memory text, John fifteen fourteen says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now, think about that. Do you think that's an interesting way of making friends? <laughs> Go up to a group and say, hey, you guys are my friends if you do whatever I command you. But how is it true when Jesus says it and how can it be misunderstood? How can that be true when Jesus says it? And how can it be misunderstood? Any thoughts on that? And what is the key to understanding it correctly or not? Yes. When Jesus says it, he says, you're my friends. You understand me. You know my ways. You know reality. You know my father. You know my character. And therefore, what I say to do, you do it because you trust me. Like it very much. So if we break this down... If we, if we view this statement through the dictator lens, that the lens that authority comes from position or rank, that's where authority comes from, then the king, the creator, he's sovereign and he has the right to give commands, to give edicts, and we show our friendship by obeying the commands without question. To question is seen as unfriendly and rebellious. How could we question? This is through that dictator view. But through the design view, God is the creator and the designer, we understand that authority rests on truth. And, of course, God is the source of all truth, so he's always authoritative because he's the source of all truth. And also we understand, his, as you say, his character of love, how he's designed things to, to work. We understand his heart and his passions and what he's desiring to do and to achieve. And that we are his friends. Um, we know him. We know his character and his heart and how his methods. And we know that the way he's designed things are the way things work best. And therefore, it makes sense to do things his way. We wouldn't want to do them any other way. Even if we don't understand the specific command, the purpose of the specific command, we do understand the one who gave this specific command. We understand his heart is always for our good. We understand that he has all knowledge. We understand that he is always self-sacrificial. We understand that he's not selfish. We understand that he can be trusted. And so we don't have to understand the specific command to understand the one who gave the command. And we would never want to deviate from it because we love and trust him. Which way have you viewed his commands throughout your life? Yes. It seems like when you see the actual commands of God, they're fairly few compared to the ones that I was given to as a small child. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Did you hear that, everybody? The actual commands of God, you can be broken. And this goes to those levels that we talked about. Remember those levels we talked about? Yeah. If we're at those more childish levels, we need lots of rules because we're always looking for the way to get around them. Yes, did you have your hand up? 
Well, I was just thinking we see this very much all the time. When you have a leader in any entity, whether it's a CEO of a corporation or whether it's a parent or wherever that leader is, when there's a trust between the leader and whoever they're leading, there isn't a nitpicky, well, I don't understand that, I don't want to do that. There's not an attitude of rebellion over every direction that's given. There's an attitude of, oh, I know you, so I'm comfortable with that. And if you're not comfortable, as we'll get to see in a moment, it's you're free to dialogue and question about it. Yeah, to, to seek understanding, in other words. Yeah. Um, what is the consequence, though, if we view the commands as coming from a dictator? If we view it in that light, God is sovereign, he's given commands, if you break his commands, and he, justice requires it, he must punish, he's a, he's a dictator. If we view it that way, it, in, it increases fear and rebellion, doesn't it? That we might do the beha- we might do the behavior, but if we do the behavior under those terms, we aren't being transformed into godliness. Or actually becoming more fearful and more rebellious over time. People who obey because the rules say so, because God said it and if we don't do it, then he must punish us. They don't grow. Unless they grow beyond that point, are generally not trustworthy people. I'll give you some examples of what I mean by that. And if they had an opportunity, they would rebel. This is why so many young people, by the way, leave the church. Why do so many young people leave the church? In my view, this is primarily the reason. They are raised in homes with a dictator God concept, given a list of rules, many of which don't make sense. They grow up, as they mature, their brains automatically start wanting to make sense of things. They begin asking questions, and as they ask questions, they're given answers like this. Well, the Bible says so. God said so. Ellen White said so. The pastor said so. Well, I said so. Because if you don't, you'll be lost. Because if you don't, it will be sin, and you'll have to have it in your record book. And if you don't get that forgiven in the blood of Jesus applied, you're going to have to pay for that. Because if you don't, if you go there, your angel won't go with you. I mean, these are the answers we're given. How many were given answers like this? Was I the only one? No. And think, if no better reason than those answers come along, people end up leaving the church when they get old enough to not actually be under supervision anymore. Think of something as simple as brushing your teeth. Very young children are given the rule, brush your teeth, and often have to be given some threat of discipline if they don't brush their teeth at a very young age. But what happens if they, as they start thinking and they begin asking questions? Well, Mommy, why do I have to brush my teeth? And the answers are always because the Bible said so. God said so. The pastor said so. Ellen White said so. Because I said so. Because if you don't, you'll be lost. Because, it, because it's sin not to brush your teeth, and you'll have to face that in the judgment. And that's the only reason they ever get. They never get a reason beyond that. They never have a dawning thought that there's another purpose for it. Then what happens when that child leaves the home? Are they going to continue brushing their teeth? No. What causes them? They ever had to. Yes, what's going to cause them to brush their teeth is, is, yes, there might have been a place to tell them that when they were very small, but as they grow, they need to come understand the reality of how life is actually constructed, that if you don't put energy into a system, it decays, and that if you don't brush your teeth, God isn't going to punish, God isn't going to be mad, I'm not going to be mad, I'm going to love you just as much, but your teeth is going to rot. And there's reasons for it to go beyond. We have to give people reasons for why God said what he said. They have to come back to understand the designer and reject that dictator. Sunday Monday's lesson points out that James started out doubting Jesus' mission and fitness, but later came, became a convert and devoted follower of Jesus. James became so devout that he was actually called James the Just, and he was the first leader of the church in Jerusalem. And the lesson states that thus, despite starting out in great doubt about Jesus, 
James ended up being a spiritual giant in the early church. What does this tell us about our ability to judge who's fit for working in God's cause? How often do we limit people from working in the church because we identify some problem in their life or in their history? Consider a few people from Scripture. These lessons are there. I'll start. And, and what do these people tell us about God? How does God look as we look at how he interacts in the lives of these people? Noah. After Noah built the ark and preached for 120 years and went through the flood, next noteworthy action was he got drunk. Should we kick him out of the church? Noah's not fit to be in leadership in our church anymore. Yeah? Hmm. How many think he would stay on the church board here in any one of your churches if he got drunk and, and, was, and was laying, passed out, drunk? How many think you'd stay on the church board? You, yeah? C- comment? Question? Well, if there was someone else to replace him, I would take him up. Yes, yes, yes. There wasn't anybody else, though, so by, de- by default, he got to stay. All right, so what about Abraham? How many, how many know that Abraham, when he was called and left his, his home, had idols and brought idols with him? Did you know Abraham had idols? Yeah. How did God treat Abraham? What about Abraham's truthfulness? Did he have a problem with truth? Uh, hmm. But then what, what about, what about uh, this is going back to a moment ago, what about when God came to Abraham and told him he was going to destroy Sodom? How did Abraham respond? Well, I'm going to just obey, obey the Lord. Or did he argue? Lord, you can't do that. Surely the God of all the earth must do the right thing. You imp- impudent. How dare you question me, the sovereign? Is that how God responded? No. Who? There are two people in the Old Testament that God uses the term friend. Who were they? Abraham and Moses. And do you notice something? And we're going to get to Moses in a moment. Both of them argued with God. Both of them questioned him. Both of them, they've certainly trusted him, but they also, when they didn't understand something, said, hold on, how can you possibly do that? And that's friendship. Interesting, isn't it? Well, you know, Abraham was also a polygamist, wasn't he? How many would have Abraham on your church board? Hmm. What about Lot and his daughters? You know you find Lot in the Hall of Faith in the New Testament? He's one of the righteous that got out of the city. He was saved because he was righteous, right? And his daughters too. Anybody know what happened to Lot and his daughters? Yeah, the daughters got daddy drunk and had children by him. The Moabites and the Ammonites came from that. Hall of Faith. How did God, what do we learn about God from, these, from him being in the Hall of Faith? How could that, how many would allow Lot to be on your church board? I don't see any hands. What's going on? And what about it, uh, Jacob, who later became Israel? He was a liar, conniver, deceiver, manipulator, fraud, cheat. Would you want him on your church board? Well, he's the father of the 12 tribes. What is wrong? Don't you people want to be like God? Yes. 
Also with Lot, you, um, you think about his children, how they didn't follow after him. And so in the New Testament requirements for electing an elder, you can't have an elder whose, ch- whose children do not follow after God, who aren't well-behaved and whatnot, etc. There are multiple things, and yet... And we, do we practice that today? And yet he was the one who was in the city gates, and he brings us to shame by inviting in strangers into his house. I mean... Didn't he, though? You know? It's for sure that he is an all-forgiving God. Yes, I'm, I'm just, uh, hopefully we're learning both how beautiful God is and how small-minded we are. What are you suggesting about leadership? Uh, we're, we're going on. <laughs> so Jacob, Israel. How did God treat him? Conniver, manipulator, liar, cheat, fraud. Did God turn him out or did God continue to work with him? Now, certainly Jacob came to a point to have a change of heart, didn't he? Yes, and his name was changed to represent Jacob means deceiver, Israel means one who's victorious with God. He had a change of heart. What about Moses? What's Moses do at age 40? He's a murderer. Murderer. And then he runs away to hide, just as most, most humans do when they murder and the law's after them. What do they do? They go and they flee. He flees. Get, let's get out of the country. Let's go to Mexico. No, no extradition. Let's go somewhere there's no extradition. Moses went to where, to where they had no extradition. Couldn't bring him back. How many would put Moses on their church board? Murderer. But God did. God worked with him. And the point I'm getting at is, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks. And when the heart changes, the history becomes irrelevant. Notice what I said. When the heart changes the history becomes irrelevant. But we want to play by history rather than by allowing for God to take people who have made mistakes. By the way, <clears throat> if we require that church leadership be with only those people who have never sinned, the sinless can only be on our church leadership. You see, we don't have a church leadership. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. We've all made mistakes. Yes. I have a question in mind here that I'm trying to formulate how to sort through the difference between history and current. Yes. Because we all know of people in leadership positions who get away with things that shouldn't be going on. And whether it's religious leaders or whether it's political leaders or whatever kind of leadership and it's more comfortable for whatever reasons to cover over and you see a lot of that happen too and I don't think God excuses that. Is there a difference between dealing with what's going on right now in history? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're supposed to make decisions based on reality. I get people in my office all the time that can't make this own distinction in their own lives. They live in shame and guilt because of some mistake that has happened decades ago. And they can never get out from under it. And the reason they can't get out from under it is because they've been raised in a dictator view of reality. That one day they're going to have to face those record books 
one day that is going to be told and everyone's going to know. Come on, how many have, have had this? Okay, here's under designer view, though, you understand that those books are health records. And so I give this example. Imagine that you were uh, recommended at your church to be children's director, children's department leader. And as they're dis- discussing your name and nominating committee, somebody says, hold on, hold on. Before you accept them in, 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 in uh, the role of leading the, the kids, you need to know, when they were five, they had a bad case of viral gastroenteritis, stomach infection, and they had terrible vomiting and diarrhea and messed up their mother's carpet and, and furniture. What would the board do if they actually said that? Why are you telling us this? Well, because it was gross. It was disgusting. Okay. Um, are they sick today? Well, no, they're actually quite healthy today. Then it's not relevant, is it? You see, the devil is like that when we look back. David was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He did all this stuff. Yeah. But David has a new heart and right spirit. He's not a murderer and adulterer anymore. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. This is reality. It's healing, regeneration, transformation. It's not about mistakes of the past. It's what is the condition of your heart today. Does this make sense? Does that answer your question? Powerful. But w- when you live under the dictator view, it doesn't matter the condition of your heart. You see, I, I, was, um, I told the story in my book, Could It Be This Simple? I had a uh, person I had lunch with tell me that um, he had a heart attack and... Uh, they defibrillated him three times, started his heart back. And each time he went out and came back and went out and came back, and ultimately he survived. He's telling me the story. But he says he remembers, he knew where he was. He knew he was in the ER. He knew his heart was stopping. He knew his heart was starting. And um, he said each time he woke up from defibrillation, understanding his hanging in the balance of life and death, one thought was in his mind. I hope there isn't some sin I forgot to confess that would keep me out of heaven. This is his thought. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if there's some sin I committed back in the past that I didn't confess, and that's still in the record books of heaven, and I'm going to have to pay for that, and I can't go to heaven. Really? Really? So imagine, let's imagine this scenario. First grader goes to school, and another child has one of those little cool pens that lights up and flashes and does all this kind of stuff, and he covets the pen. And So when the child's out at recess, he steals the pen. And as time unfolds, he steals other things from around because he's developing the character of thief. And, and when he becomes a, uh, an adult, he's continuing to steal and he gets caught and sent to prison as a thief. And in prison, prison ministries are working in prison. He comes to know the Lord Jesus for the first time and he confesses his heart to the Lord. The Lord comes in and he's like David. He's reborn in the inner man. He's a new heart and right spirit. And he lives as an honest man from that point forward. And when he's out of prison, he never, never does anything even close to, to stealing. He'll pay a little extra on his taxes rather than to be even considered possibly stealing again. But he never remembered about that pen. When he gets to heaven, is the Lord going to say, you know, you've got a heart like David, a friend after my own heart, but you never remembered that pen, so I'm going to have to send you to hell now. Is that what's going to happen? The pen's irrelevant. You don't have to remember every little thing that ever happened. The, condition is the, the issue is the condition of your heart today. But if you're under the legal model, then you've got to, you know, make sure you check off every box. Yes? Maybe you'll get to this also, but a little bit of cognitive... Uh dissonance here. I agree with what you're saying, though, that we shouldn't hold the history against them. And yet, uh, we have a situation where Lord says, by their fruits you shall know them, number one. Number two, we're handicapped 
because we cannot look into the heart as Christ does. So let's put that to the test by your fruits. Does that mean by the fruits that the tree brought out 37 years ago, you will know it? No, absolutely not, but maybe five years ago. Really? Really? No, it's this season. Because, you know, you can graph in stuff to a plant, can't you? And we're to graft into Christ, aren't we? This is the metaphor. And you can graph in a branch and a fruit, a tree that brought forth one fruit last year. If you graph in a different type, you can bring forth a different fruit this year, if you do a graft. We have a problem with the, with the time element. How long does it take that graft to take? Maybe that graft won't take. So what's the purpose of the question? The purpose of the question is to try to determine, okay, the murderer who committed a murder two days ago, for example, a time element there, uh, would we feel free in asking him to come in and babysit our children two days later by saying, well, you know, change of heart. We can't look into the heart as the Lord can, as the Lord can, and thereby I can easier understand how he could uh, put Noah on the church board. How about the person that he murdered was a Taliban terrorist who was breaking into your house to blow up your kids? And that's who he murdered. Would you trust him with your kids next day? I'll settle that when I'm <laughs> You see... Um, the, the, but you notice that the, the, the question, we so much want to know the condition of someone else's heart, don't we? Our responsibility is to know the condition of our own heart and to be the healthiest person we can be, to present the truth in love, and to treat every person as a child of God, regardless of whether they just murdered someone or whether they are the pastor of your church. And, and, and in reality, Jesus pointed to the prostitutes and the tax collectors whose behavior was sought to represent bad fruit and said that they're going into the kingdom of heaven ahead of the Pharisees, whose behavior was perfectly right, even tithing on their herbs in their garden. But Jesus said these with the bad behavior are going into heaven again ahead of these. How can that be? Except that we, maybe the people could not see the bad behavior because it was done behind the closed doors. Yeah, so, so do you see the dangers in watching fruit? Well, that's where the cognitive dissonance comes in, because we do have this measure. There is no, there's no cognitive dissonance at all when you focus on your responsibility. And your responsibility is to be in governance of yourself and have the healthiest heart you can be and be sure that you've been reborn in the inner man. He's not talking about whether that person's saved or not. He's saying whether or not they should be head of the children's department. He's talking about discernment. How do we yes. discern? And it's challenging. I think you... No, but th- no there's, a legitimate, uh, there's a legitimate question there in discernment on how do we... But, but I was really dealing with how do we treat people. But I did open the door because I asked in leadership. Yes, I asked in church leadership. And, I, and there is a time element, and, and I think that's the point you're making. And I, each person and each issue has to be dealt with on its own in that regard. If somebody has made some mistakes in the past and you want to see a demonstration over time that they are living a different life, and if you see that demonstrated over time, then you can have confidence that they've had a change of heart. But verbal declarations alone are not transformational. Yes, yes. I read just this week in a church publication an article discussing certain issues and saying that if a pastor had had certain sins 
they should never, they could be forgiven by God, but never ever allowed back into the ministry if those certain sins occurred. You know, um, this is where I'm wanting to go with this, and that is, it, because each of us have certain sins in our life. Your certain sins may not be my certain sins, but we all have certain sins, don't we? Okay? Um, and one of the t- tricks of the devil is that when he has tripped us up and got us to commit an act of certain, of certain sin, whatever that is, is then to infect our mind with now we are cast off, we are useless, we are defective, we are deformed, we are beyond healing, we're beyond hope, that we have completely ruined our reputation, ruined our life, ruined our fitfulness for God's cause. And the cases of the Bible prove all that wrong. If you trust the Lord and say, Lord, you know what, I'm just going to trust you, and if you can use me, show me where, and I'll go work there. And let him lead in that. He will open doors and he'll restore you to work in his cause where he can still use you. And this is what we see. And I want to disabuse people. And it's much more important for me today to disabuse people who have struggled with guilt and shame in their life and feeling that they're no longer fit for working with God's cause than defining a, a set of criteria we need to judge everybody in the room around us. That's my focus for today. And if we want to talk about that, at the time we can come up with an objective measure that a system can use if you want to do that. But that is not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is God wants to use everyone. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. God, if you trust him and open your heart, he will heal you. He will restore you. He will regenerate you. He will give you a character like Christ, and he will use you for his kingdom. Now, whether the people around you will allow you to work with them or not, that may not be. You may have to go to a mission field somewhere. I don't know where the Lord will lead. But the Lord will put you to work if you trust him and let him heal you. Very good summary. Yeah, I think the, the, the thing that has to be included in that, though, is not just that we shouldn't judge, but that we shouldn't allow that judgment as an excuse to withdraw from God's work. Yes, exactly. See, God, so God takes the worst cases. And heals, restores, cleanses, and recreates them. He takes the weak things of the world to confound the wise. That's what he does. Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph points out rightly that the Reformation did not end with Luther. It has continued to the close of the world's history because grave errors were perpetrated by the Reformers and many important truths were still to be revealed. What important truths were still to be revealed that did not come out in the Reformation? Big ones. Truth about God's character of love. The truth about God's law of love being the design protocols, moving away from imposed law to design law. The truth about God's plan to heal and restore, not merely pardon. Not merely pardon. The truth about the false legal view that infected the church. The truth about the nature of man being mortal, awaiting for the gift of immortality. The truth about the final end of sin and sinners. The truth of the purpose of the Sabbath and how it's a sign of the designer who presents truth and love and leaves people free, contrasted with any day of arbitrary that's arbitrarily imposed and coerced. Any day that's done that way. The truth about the purpose of Christ's mission to earth. All these truths were, were not fully recovered. His mission to earth, which includes revealing the truth about God and himself, exposing Satan as a liar and fraud, securing the universe unfallen in its innocence, procuring the remedy to our condition, revealing why death occurs and the Father's role in it. Destroying death, destroying Satan and Satan's power, and developing a perfect human character. He achieved all of these things. The lesson points out that the Seventh-day Adventist Church was raised up to proclaim the third angel's message. Or the third angel's messages, whichever way you like to say it. 
the third angel's message. What is it? Can somebody tell me that very succinctly? Well, we're raised up to spread the third angel's message, which is? Fear God and give glory to him. Now that, you're quoting a scripture. Tell me what that means. Because that is the first of the three. The angel came from the uh, heaven with uh, the eternal gospel. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. So I will sum it up in, in a couple bullets here. The truth about God and his character of love, which is the everlasting good news. That is the good news, the truth about God and his character of love. It's always true, always will be true. It has never changed. It's the good news of who God is because that was, was misrepresented and people doubted God's goodness. The good news is the good news about God. That's the eternal gospel that is to be part of the message that goes to the world. Uh, to be restored in character, to be like Christ through our trust in God, having seen who God really is, we come back to trust him, which gives, which results from coming back to that truth, yes. And this is giving God glory. It says, um, be in awe of God, be amazed, be overwhelmed. It's the old English fear, but not be terrorized, but be awed and overwhelmed with, because you see the truth of his character, open your heart and trust, and then give him glory, meaning have a character like his, live like he lives, operate on his principles. In this particular time of history, we need to do this because it's the time when the truth about God's character is revealed so people can judge him rightly. The hour of his judgment has come. The hour when people are to decide whether God is like the dictator out of Rome or whether God is the creator designer who's exactly in character like Jesus revealed him to be. Who is God? Make your decision because as you judge who God is, you ultimately pass judgment on yourself. And then, of course, others too, yes, you become judgmental. It is a message that exposes the legal system coming out of the Dark Ages as an infection which misrepresents God, a dictator like Rome, which keeps a thousand separate little doctrinal rules, and everybody argues over those rules because it's a confused system of Babylon. Babylon has fallen, it's fallen. It's confused. There are 34,000 different Christian groups today claiming the Bible. It's a confused, fallen system. Why? Because when you operate on imposed law like our, our laws in the nation of America, how many laws do we have? How, how many volumes do we have to put up here to have all the laws of this nation? Of every state, every county, every... How, how many volumes do we have to have? Why do we have to have all those volumes? Because there's an unregenerate hearts at work. But when you've been matured to be like Christ, it comes down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You see, when you love your neighbor... You don't need a written law not to murder them. When you love your neighbor, you don't need a written law not to steal from them. When you love your neighbor, you don't need a written law not to embezzle. You don't need a written law not to slander. You don't need written law to take their work and present it as your own work. You see what all the different laws that we have? You don't need them when you love your neighbor as yourself. This is growing up into maturity. So why do we have all these laws? And, why, and then you take that and extrapolate it right back into Christianity. Why do we have all these rules for Christian behavior? Why do we have all these doctrinal arguments about whether it's this or it's that? Because we're operating on this imposed penal system that came out of the Dark Ages. And we see God as a dictator with a bunch of rules. And that's the second angel's message. That system has fallen. It's corrupt. It can't regenerate. It only leads to fear and insecurity. You live your life worrying about whether I did this wrong, whether I did that wrong. Did I did I disobey the Sabbath? Did I eat the wrong food? And it's a message calling people out of that system. With a dire warning of the terrible pain and suffering that comes 
if you stay out of harmony with how God has built life to operate. It's painful over there. What role does the law play in the third angel's message? Well, here's how our church used to teach the law. I'll give you the references. Review and Herald, April 5, 1898. But the law requires... Now, under the penal view, you will hear taught in church that the broken law requires the death of the sinner and that, that God must kill. Notice what this article says. The law requires that the soul itself be pure and the mind holy, that the thoughts and feelings may be in accordance with the standard of love and righteousness. What's it require? The righteous life. And why does it require that? That's how it is. That's how life is built to operate. It'd be like saying, the laws of health require you breathe. Why does it require that? Because we're built to breathe. It's the only way you can live to breathe. The only way we can have eternal life is to be regenerated to love God and others more than self. Or this one, A New Life, page 32. The divine law requires us to love God supremely and our neighbor as ourself. It's a requirement we must love. Or this one, February, um, uh, Bible Echo, February 15, 1889. The law requires your heart's supreme affection for your maker. It requires you to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or Review and Herald, March 11, 1884. This is the voice of God to you, my brother, brethren and sisters, whom profess to keep the law of God. That law requires that you love your neighbor as yourself. Are you doing this? That's what it says. The Lord will give ample light. This is out of, unlike this one, Review and Herald, February 15, 1898. The Lord will give ample light to all those, all who will be true and loyal to him. Notice, we get ample light to all who will be true and loyal to him. But he will show no more favor to Phariseeism and self-righteousness today than when he walked in his humanity in our world. So what is Phariseeism? It is a legal religion, a religion of rules, a religion focused on keeping all the do's and the don'ts, a religion that, that must have a legal accounting of everything. That's what that is. Penal substitution theology is Phariseeism. That's what I'm telling you. The soul that encourages an atmosphere of doubt, God cannot favor with constantly increasing grace. If you doubt, you can't get more grace. What does that mean? So number one, what is it that encourages doubt? It's a soul that encourages an atmosphere of doubt. What is it that encourages doubt? I'm going to tell you, what encourages doubt is presenting a God who is a dictator, who's angry, who will afflict punishment if you sin, who's up there just waiting to spank you, and he needs Jesus to plead his... I mean, you doubt his goodness. You doubt his favor. You doubt he can, he can watch out. You doubt he'll forgive you. This view of God encourages doubt, doesn't it? And this is why we can't grow in grace, not because he isn't willing to pour his grace out upon us, but because when we doubt him, we don't believe it. I mean, think about somebody who has abused you or who you believe is an abuser. Your brother has told you this guy has molested three kids in the neighborhood. Now, he hasn't done it, but you've been told he's done it. But he hasn't. In reality, he hasn't. But you've been told by your brother he has, and you believe it. Do you doubt, doubt his goodness now? Would you accept favors from him? He wants to, he offers to babysit your kids while you're at work. You can accept the, the favor? You see, you can't take favors from somebody you doubt. You can't do it. 
when we doubt his goodness based on the lies that we're told, then we can't receive his favor. Our doubt is not he's unwilling to give it. We can't receive it. And then we continue on with the quote. His mercy, his mercy and the gracious influence of his spirit remain the same for all who will receive them. Notice again, exactly what I just explained. It's, his, it's still there. It's the same for all, but they won't receive it. He offers, his offer of salvation does not change. It is man who changes his relationship to God. Many place themselves where they cannot recognize his grace and his salvation. They are under a delusion as to what constitutes Christianity. And while man refuses to become pure, holy, and undefiled, as God's law requires him to do, he is walking away from Christ. What does God's law require us to do? Get our sins pardoned? No, to become pure, holy, and undefiled. Why would some refuse? Why would some refuse to become healed, become pure, holy, and undefiled? Why would they refuse this? because they've been taught a lie that that's not what's needed. They refuse it because they don't believe they have a a problem that needs it. Remember what Christ said, that that he's come for the sick, not for the well. Those who've kept all the rules all their life and they think they're in harmony because they've done everything they're supposed to do, they don't need to be healed. They're already righteous. They're the Laodiceans. They're rich in all these goods they've got. Signs of the Times, November 23, 1891. His law requires us to love God supremely and our neighbor as ourselves. You see a theme here. This is out of Signs of the Times, January 7, 1897. The law requires that justice and right be exercised between man and his fellow man. It requires that we shall not injure our neighbor in his property, his feelings, his health, or his good name. It requires compassion for the afflicted, even if he be our enemy that in all our associations with our fellow beings, we shall show the same love and care that we would wish to have exercised toward ourselves. Is this how it's typically presented, what the law requires? If the law, so think, think that through. The law requires that we show love to our enemies. Does that apply to God? Yes. Then do you see a problem when they present God as coming back to kill his enemies? See, it goes against the law. He's not coming back to kill them. Not that they won't die. I'm not a universalist. They will die. But he's not going to be the inflictor of death. He's the source of life. Death comes from sin, unremedied, in the life of the sinner. February, February, signs of the times, February 24, 1898. Christ came to this world to live the law and represent the character of God that the delusions which Satan has brought upon the world might be dispelled. What delusion? What delusion? You guys know what a delusion is? Delusion is a fixed false belief. That's what it is. A fixed false belief. You're fixing it and it's false. That's a delusion. And she uses that word. It's Satan is brought upon the world. And I'm going to tell you what you guys have said is right. The fixed false belief about God. In the Sermon on the Mount, he who gave the law became the expositor of the law. That sermon, so full of what it means to love and obey God, is the unfolding of his character. The law is shown to be a representation of God's character. This law requires nothing short of perfect spiritual obedience. Ooh, how many would have been frightened by that when, uh, you know, a few years they were coming up as a kid? How many had said words like that that just, ooh, but I've made a mistake? Perfect spiritual obedience. What does that perfect spiritual obedience mean? Notice, it didn't say perfect behavioral obedience. It said perfect spiritual obedience. What is that? It means you love him with your whole heart and you trust him. It doesn't mean you don't stumble and fall. Think about in your love relationships with your family. Do you ever 
stumble and fall and let them down, but your heart really wasn't in it. You're sorry that you did. Yes. This is perfect spiritual obedience. Our heart wants to do this. Is, this is Romans 7. Lord, the things I want to do, I don't find myself doing. The things I don't want to do, sometimes I do. Oh, what a wretched man am I who will save me from this body of death. His heart wasn't in it. His heart was wanting to be perfect, but yet he wasn't strong enough sometimes. He slipped and fell. He stumbled. But he's perfect spiritual obedience because he, he wants to be better than he is. This is the last of these quotes. And it's how can we experience. Now, I, I've, this is what we're supposed to experience. I give you a whole long list of, how, of what we're supposed to experience. Now, how do you experience this? This is brilliant. This is the Thoughts Amount of Blessings, page 54. While the law is holy, the Jews could not attain righteousness by their own efforts to keep the law. The disciples of Christ must obtain righteousness of a different character from that of Pharisees if they would enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Pharisees, that whole legal thing, keep the rules, don't eat this, don't eat that, go to this, be sure the TV's off by then, do this, do that, don't wade uh, water above the knee on Sabbath, none of that, okay? Different character if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. God offered them in his Son the perfect righteousness of the law. If they would open their hearts fully to receive Christ, then the very life of God, his love, would dwell in them, transforming them into his own likeness. And thus, through God's free gift, they would possess the righteousness which the law requires. Do you understand how this has been perverted in our own church? What they teach in our church is not this. At least some in our church. Some teach this, but some don't. The predominant view that I've come up against is this, that they gave, he gave the gift of his perfect son, the perfect righteousness was filled in the son, and they gave him the gift as our legal payment. And if you accept that payment, then you are declared righteous in a legal format from heaven. And in the books of heaven, you are accounted as righteous. That's what is taught. It removes it from the the actual place where the remedy needs application. It'd be like saying that you were dying with Ebola's big in the news now, you've got Ebola infection. And you're dying, and there's a remedy that will fix you and heal you. And what they do is they go to your medical records because you've agreed that the remedy will work and you value the remedy, and they've written in your records that you are now well, but they never give you the remedy. This is what they're doing. It's a diversion. In reality, notice, I'm going to read it again. Notice where it's applied. God offered them his son, the perfect righteousness of the law. If they would open their hearts fully to receive Christ, then the very life of God, remember we were partakers of the divine nature, the very life of God, his love would dwell in them, transforming them into his own likeness. And thus through the free, God's free gift, they would possess the righteousness which the law requires. It's not some legal accounting. It's actual regeneration of us that we become like Christ in heart. Our thoughts are brought into harmony with his thoughts. Our mind becomes one with his mind. We live his life, as it says in Christ's Object Lessons 3.11. This is what it means to be covered in the robe of righteousness. Isn't that beautiful, guys? It's powerful. It's real. It's regenerational. This is what the Lord is waiting for. He's waiting for a people to experience this and live like he lives. And stop living in fear. Do you know how many Christians live in fear? Perfect love casts out all. And that's how you get that love, the love written in the heart. Yes. You used the expression earlier today, and Ellen White has used the expression, that it's not just a legal accounting. 
Is there a legal aspect to it? Depends on how you define law, isn't there? Have we, have we established that God's law is real, that it's unchangeable, that it's the, the protocols upon which life exists? Must we be put in harmony with the law? Yes, all those things happen. Is there some mechanism of arbitrary imposed rules? No. Is there some accounting of reality that this person who used to be out of harmony with my design is now in harmony with my design? Yes, that reality is accounted for, but it's not done in some um, arbitrarily imposed legal system. It's just reality. It's the way it is. You either have been healed and restored to righteousness, or you haven't been. I'm going to skip over some of this. Because we're not going to get through it all. You guys know that, right? Okay. um, We'll jump to Thursday's lesson. The last few minutes of the class. First paragraph in Thursday's lesson. James had the opportunity to observe Jesus when he was a child, a youth, and an adult. Then at some point, James not only believed in Jesus as Messiah, but became a leader of the Christians in Jerusalem. And yet James calls himself not a brother, but a bondservant of Jesus. Clearly, James learned humility and true wisdom. Not surprisingly, these are also important themes of this letter. First question, why do you think James chose to identify himself as a servant or bondservant rather than emphasize that he was actually a brother of Jesus. And I think there's a reason beyond just the fact that he was humbled. Brothers are equals. Can be. And, and, and he was an older brother, actually. Right. <laughs> so in, in, in that culture, is an older brother equal? No, older brother actually has some superiority, don't, don't they? So number one, it was to be, make it clear that he, as a brother, was not superior to Christ. He was the he, he was a bondservant. and he was not superior. But I think there's another reason. I think that's a very good one. Another reason, though, as well, I think he was disabusing people of the idea that any type of genetic relationship meant anything in this, in this kingdom. And this is, this is an idea that's still rife. The Jews back then believed very strongly. We're genetic descendants of Abraham. We've got rights. We've got rights. It was given to our father, and we've inherited those rights. That's all arbitrary legal law stuff. Okay. And Jesus said, if you were of your father Abraham, you would love and trust me. But you're of your father the devil. That's what he told them. They're going down the human inheritance rights. And many Christians today are still duped by this, thinking that being a genetic descendant of Abraham gives some advantage in salvation, and there'll be a special time for genetic Jews on the earth sometime in the future. Genetics means nothing. We're all genetic descendants. And if you go back to Scripture and what Paul wrote in the New Testament... All mankind was in Adam and sinned in Adam. And now there's a second Adam, not a second Abraham. Okay? So we're all either in Adam, the, the, the one in Eden, or we're in the second Adam in Christ. That's, that's it. You're connected to one or the other. The whole legal thing about Satan having some claim. That's Satan's view. Satan is the original legalist. He makes claims. He claims to have some rights. This is bought... bought brought a lot of distorted theology. You see a little bit of that infecting C.S. Lewis's work, The um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where where Aslan has to give his life to the White Witch to free the son of Adam. Remember in the story, this kind of market exchange going on. But it's not true. Um, Adam ruled under the rulership of Christ. And so he was the vicegerent, but Christ was the true, true sovereign. Satan claims to be... To Jesus, all these things have been given unto me. 
they weren't his. He stole them from Adam, but they were still Christ by right. He was the creator. He was the designer. He built it. He owned it. It was all his still. So this idea that he had some legal right to it, that's Satan's mindset. That's a created being's mindset. Remember, God builds the fabric of the cosmos. His laws are the protocols upon which reality actually operates. Created beings cannot do this. What created beings can do is created beings can make rules. What we call laws. We can do that. And we can then impose them with our external force. God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are higher than our ways. Satan is a created being, and he's tried to corrupt in the minds of intelligent beings God's design and law of love into this set of rules that are arbitrarily applied with favoritism. You see, there is no favoritism with design law. There is none. The farmer who goes out and plants his seed in the spring and the farmer who goes on a drunken binge and, and gambling uh, week uh, several months down in uh, Vegas but tells everybody he planted his fields, when the fall comes, they get two different harvests. The design law doesn't play favorites there. It's not God saying, okay, since you went and drank and, and lived wild and didn't plant your fields, I'm going to curse you with a bad harvest. And you over here who did a good job, I'm going to give you a good harvest. No. When you operate in harmony with design law, you get consequences. When you deviate from those laws, you get consequences. And that's the legality. There's no favoritisms at all. But Lucifer alleges God plays favorites. He just made up rules. And he just, he just arbitrarily imposed, well, I like you, and this is taught in Christianity. Have you ever heard the uh, predestination teachings? Some, some, some views of that? Some views of that teach things like, God chooses and predetermines beforehand who will be saved and who will be lost. That puts God in this arbitrary role. No, he doesn't. God chose beforehand that he would commit himself to saving this species and this planet and opening up salvation to all human beings. He predetermined what he would do. But it's up to us whether we partake of that or not. Last paragraph. It says, as we study the book of James this quarter, we will find a very similar approach. James is not content with weak, fruitless, and vacillating faith. Uh, as we will see next week, faith dominates the early part of the book, and James shows how crucial quali- uh, this crucial quality undergirds the vital relationship with Christ. What is a weak, vacillating faith? You know what I call that? I call that superstition. Think what superstition is. It's a faith. It's a weak, vacillating, insecure, fear-based faith. And think what people do in superstitions. Examples of weak faith would be things like, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Is that strong faith or weak faith? Don't ask questions, just do it. Here's a quote, Review and Herald, page uh, January 5, 1886. When we speak of unbelief, we do not mean that a person believes nothing. The mind must rest on something. And when it does not grasp truth, it lays hold of error. This comes out of the Bible when it says those who did not love the truth were given over to strong delusion to believe a lie. I heard a pastor on the radio preaching, and he said, see, if you don't accept the truth, God's going to use his power to make you delusional. That's what the pastor said. That's not what it means. If you, any, any, 
any truth, doesn't be spiritual truth, any truth. We, we go out and we say the sky is blue and we get a, we get a, a, an instrument that can measure the wavelength of light and we can re- get the refractory index back of that and we can actually give you the actual nanometer wavelength that's being refracted right now. We say this is the color blue and here's the wavelength. And we present it to you as evidence. Are you still free as a moral agent to reject that and say, no, you made that up? You could, couldn't you? I don't believe that. Well, fine, reject blue. That's not blue. What, what's left? doesn't matter what you pick now. Once you've rejected the truth, everything else left is false. This is why when you reject the truth, you're given over to strong delusion to believe a lie, because that's the only thing that's left for you to believe. This is what she's saying here. All men in one sense believe... It says, uh, the mind must rest upon something when it does not uh, grasp truth. It lays hold of error. All men, in one sense, believe, and the effect produced upon the heart and character is in accordance with the things believed. Eve believed the words of Satan, and the belief of that falsehood in regard to God's character changed the condition and character of both herself and her husband. They were changed from good and obedient children into transgressors, and it was only by repentance towards God and faith in the promised Messiah that they could hope to gain everlasting life. Paul had faith before his conversion. But it was not a correct faith. His self-righteousness strengthened his faith. Think about that. Self-righteousness strengthening a false faith. Have you ever seen that? That self-righteousness strengthened his faith that he was doing God's service and rejecting Christ and he enjoined a rest, and he enjoyed a restful satisfaction. False faith as well as true faith will give peacefulness for a time. Paul verily thought that he was doing God's service when he was persecuting the followers of Christ and putting them to death. He was sincere in his belief, but sincerity will not make error into truth, nor truth into error. This is a very, very important principle. One of the things I see in, in, the, in the world today, uh, in, in medicine today, when they're bringing in spirituality, is this, is this confusion between the principles of liberty and tolerance and belief. And there's a principle that we should always promote. We present the truth and love and we leave people free. We don't coerce conscience. And the truth is, every person is free to believe as they choose. And that's a reality that's true. And we should respect that. But we should not mistake that with the idea that all beliefs are equally healthy. They're not. Some beliefs are ap- absolutely damaging. Like my one patient who believed that cigarette smoke helped her lungs work better. She was free to believe it. But it's not a healthy belief. So don't confuse the idea that everybody is free to believe what they want with the idea that all beliefs are equally valuable or healthy, because they're not. And our responsibility is to develop a mind that loves truth, develop those discerning abilities, as in Hebrews um, chapter 5, verse 14, the mature those who've developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. Developing that ability within yourself to tell the difference. And maybe we should talk about that in class. How do you tell the difference? between the healthy and the unhealthy. Maybe we, I see some heads nodding. We can go through that. I've, I actually have a program I'm preparing for counselors and medical students um, at, uh, that I'm going to be doing, which I'm going to actually teach them how to actually take a problem and run it through the filters of design law to come out to a conclusion. Would you like to do that sometime? Yeah, maybe we'll do that. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth of who you are and how you as our creator and designer being of love, has constructed your universe to operate on these beautiful, amazing principles. We ask that your spirit will enlighten our minds, bring the pieces together. May we see and understand more fully, and may we choose freely, with admiration, with love, with respect and awe, to embrace your character, your methods, and freely participate with you. Heal us, restore us, write your law of love in our hearts. 
and then enable us to go out and share this message effectively with so many people who have good hearts but, but have been trapped in a system that, that teaches them things that cause fear and insecurity and teaches them to doubt you, Lord. They need this message of who you are. Open the avenues that we can share it. We pray in your holy name.